It was a great week being on leave away with the family. Um, I think it was a bit of a struggle coming back uh, yesterday, a long drive from Durban uh, with two babies. And so it's almost like any relaxation you had on holiday almost got undone just in an eight-hour drive from uh, Durban to here. Um, so be praying for us. This could go anywhere, guys. It's one of those days. But uh, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome if you're joining us online. Welcome to you too. I was one of the, the online guys last week. Literally, uh, I was lying on a lounge chair thing next to a pool at the cabanas in Umschlange listening to Lorelei's message going, I've got to follow this. And so let's make sure that I know what's happening. And uh, so if you, if you haven't been tracking with us, we're continuing through the Minor Prophets. We're in the book of Joel, wrapping it up today. It's a very short book, only two parts we're going to be uh, in it. And uh, it's a book that naturally has two parts, naturally falls into kind of uh, these two sides of the same coin. And they're quite stark. Because last week, uh, Lorelei kind of camped in Joel chapter 2. And it's an amazing passage because it speaks about the restoration heart of God in His desire to outpour His Spirit on people, to dwell within people. And so it's an amazing setting. You then get to chapter 3 and even in the setup of chapter 1. And we start to look at something that gets a little bit more hectic. And uh, I'll put the disclaimer up front. I fully understand that when we look at the judgment of God, it is sometimes a topic that can put us on the back foot. I'll acknowledge it that this might fall on as a weighty message. Um, but at the same time, I don't want you to miss the heart of God in it. And so just to give you kind of a, a setting of the scene, Laura and I spoke a little bit about this last week, but the book of Joel kind of comes on the back of a major plague, a, a plague of locusts that had hit uh, Israel. And in chapter one and all the way through the first chunk of chapter two, basically it's God laying out uh, saying, this is a judgment I am bringing upon you, my own people have done where you have gone wrong because my heart for you is that you would be restored and so through one and the beginning of chapter two we see the judgment given in the immediate in the natural through this invasion of locusts that destroy the land but we also see the people then repent and be restored chapter two kicks in and now it gets into it blows up into a bigger more intense thing in terms of the ultimate judgment and the ultimate uh, restoration that God has in mind for all of humanity where he says hey I will bring restoration and it will come through my son and my spirit and so his desire is that he would dwell with us that we would be restored and I don't think we can ever separate these two things I know you might get jittery I get jittery talking about the uh, the, the judgment of God understanding the the context we are in and understanding how it can become quite a negative thing to many people. But it's my hope that you don't miss that heart of salvation that God has. Because the two things always come together. It's always God's judgment, but His heart and motivation is to bring restoration. It's to dwell with His people. And so that's where we're going to be in the book of Joel. I'm taking you into chapter 3. And chapter 3 is pretty intense because we now move into a very uh, intense session of judgment. It starts out with a, an immediate judgment of the enemy people, the people who had actually come against Israel and had done them wrong. And he lists all the sin that was committed against his own people by these enemy nations that were around them, sending them into exile, looting his temple, making worship the worship of him impossible for his people, selling them into slavery. And he says, hey, I didn't miss that. I saw it, I'm aware of it, and I will do something about it. And my judgment will be visited on the enemy people. And then it blows up into the ultimate judgment, the kind of world end judgment 
a picture where God will judge, judge every single person. Because it's not just about the enemy uh, peoples of the nation of Israel. He actually says, hey, don't forget that every single one of us will sit in that seat where we will be judged by God. And it's an important thing to note. But he's got a heart for each one of us that we would find restoration through it. That we would find a restored relationship with him through it. I'm going to pray. We're going to dive into this. Father God, as we look at these things, as we look at both your immediate judgment, but also your eternal judgment, it's my prayer right now that you'd be doing business in our hearts. That we would see that there is truth to this. There is a realigning that needs to happen in our thinking and our perspective on what, it, what your word has to say about judgment. But at the same time, Lord, it's my prayer that we don't miss your heart for every single one of us. Your heart that actually is pursuing us. The heart of uh, the loving Father, but also the righteous judge. It's my prayer that you'll be over my words. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would speak through me, and that you would be glorified in this place. And everybody said... Amen. I'm going to give you an overview of the whole chapter. Uh, Joel chapter 3 is 21 verses, and it's super prophetic in its language, in its intensity, even in the imagery that gets used. And if you read it right now and, you have, and you're not necessarily familiar with it, I can guarantee you it would probably be a bit of a, a weird read, even a bit of a fearful read. But I'm going to encourage you as I come uh, into it, I'm going to give you an overview. And then I've got 10 things that I believe God, Joel chapter 3 is wanting to teach us and show us about God's judgment. I normally, you'll know me, I'm normally the guy who's only two or three points max. Today we're doing something special, there's 10 points. And so if you're taking notes, God be with you. But Joel chapter 3, just to give you an overview of the whole thing, and as I start to pick out, I'm not going to read all 21 verses. I'm actually going to just pick out uh, where I really feel God's wanting to show us or, uh, or reveal something about His judgment. I encourage you at the end of this, maybe later today, maybe later in the week, maybe if you're uh, one of those people that do have to get on the podcast and listen again, I'd encourage you to read the entire 21 verses again on the back end of this, because I promise you it will give you a new lens. It's given me a new lens and a new perspective even as I read these things where it gets really prophetic and, and it's the, this beautiful imagery. Because sometimes when you get into prophetic writing or prophetic literature within the Bible, there's so much that is foreign to us and so much that we can miss. And yet when we get the context, when we understand uh, these little grains of truth and how it all plays together, the mosaic comes together. And we get to see the beauty of God as He desires restoration for us. It kicks off in verse 1 and 2 and it introduces the judgment that God will bring. It says this in verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations, bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. He says, there is a valley I will bring these people to, these enemies of Israel, and they will be judged. And he calls it the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I want you to know that that is not an actual place. The place doesn't exist. But it's very intentional that God uses this phrase because he points back to a king in Israel's history, Jehoshaphat, who he had rescued out of the hand of many enemies. And so he says, hey, in the midst of my judging of these people for all that they have done to you, all of the sin they have committed against you, I don't want you to forget that I will be delivering you out of the enemy's hand. 
And so he calls it that. Jehoshaphat actually means Jehovah, Je- uh, Jehovah judges. Joel sees this great day coming when God will actually vindicate both his name and his people and come against the enemies for what they have done, where he actually writes their wrong. And he'll call out the sin of these nations as they had committed them against Israel. And every single one gets called out. He doesn't leave any out. He calls them out for uh, selling his people into slavery. He calls them out for their idolatry. He calls them out for them looting and destroying his temple, the place of worship. And he says, I have not missed it. I have, gone, I have seen it and I will act. Verse 12 then describes this scene of great judgment. It says, let the nations stir themselves up. Come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And so this multitude gets gathered. Verse 14 says it like this. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in that valley. This doesn't mean that people come to make a decision. This is actually a valley where the decision of God is visited upon them. In the valley of decision, there is only one decider and it's God and God alone. Joel sees this future and the judgment in the immediate and bigger, the bigger picture of judgment in eternity as having one of two sides. It will either fall to a side where there will be salvation and blessing for those who call on His name, or on the other side there will be judgment and destruction for those who have turned against Him. The contrast gets laid out in the final verses. Verse 16 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. He looks to the end of age. He looks to the final judgment day and it uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. If you've been tracking with us in the Minor Prophets, this is a phrase that has come up and will come up a lot. I'll give you the quick snapshot just if you don't know what it is. The day of the Lord is a day in in the future that will set out uh, what eternity will look like with God as God and man as man and in perfect relationship. And so it is the day where God will come and He will right every wrong. It's where Revelation speaks about, it's the moment where He will dry and wipe away tears, where there will be no more sickness, no more disease, because everything that had gone wrong has now been corrected by a righteous God. That's the day of the Lord. And that's where this picture of the lion enters. I have a desperate desire to get a tattoo of a lion. I get it's a cliche being a pastor who has tattoos. But in this image, you can see the beauty of it. Because the lion that comes from Zion is a lion who comes to do one of two things. He either comes to devour or he comes to protect. He either comes to bring destruction to those who have gone against him and have hurt his people, or he brings protection, a refuge and a stronghold to those who call on his name. It's a beautiful picture. And I think as we look at this idea of God's judgment, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the difficulty and the weightiness of the topic. And we start to kind of get skittish and take a back foot. I wanna encourage you, see it in, with both in mind. That God does come as judge, but He also comes as the loving Father wanting to restore. Joel chapter 3 in its entirety talks about God's judgment. These are the 10 things I believe it's revealing to us about God's judgment and what God wants us to know today. Number one is this, that when it comes to God's judgment, it is certain. It starts out very clear. It says, for behold in those days, at that time when I restore, I will gather. It's very certain language used by God here. 
There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's how it's going to go down. It will be by my action, by my will, and by my call. And so it's very certain. But then there's the question of, okay, cool. It will happen. It will go down like this. But who will be the one that actually judges? Because Scripture lays out who will be the actual one actively judging those living and those dead. And I want to give you a quick run just through a few scriptures because I want you to see that this is present and active in Joel chapter 3, but it is actually present and active across the entire Bible. And so I'll take you back to the Old Testament. Here's a passage from Psalm 9, uh, from Psalm 98, it's verse 9. It says, Before the Lord, for He comes to the judge the earth, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Fast forward to Jesus' teaching. We often think Jesus was just a cool, soft teacher. You can find nearly 50 references where Jesus very specifically talks about the judgment of God, talks about the day of judgment and how it will go down. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Fast forward to the New Testament, the birth of the early church. In Acts chapter 10, this is what the apostles have to say. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. It is certain that it will come. The judgment will happen. And it is certain who will be the one judging Jesus, the lion from Zion. Number two. When it comes to God's judgment, it is for all. It actually specifically in God's words through Joel says, I will gather all the nations. He had turned his attention not just from uh, the enemies and for what they had done. He turns it even to his own people and says it will be for all nations. No one is left out. He's the God over Israel, but he is also the God over all creation. And so if he is the righteous judge, if he is the fair judge, the perfect judge, it means no one will escape. Everyone will have their moments sitting in that seat, answering for what they have done and not done. Romans 2 puts it like this. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The judgment is so intense, so comprehensive, so uh, for everyone that no one gets, no one escapes it. But it is also so comprehensive that he even knows the secrets of our hearts. There's so much that we can hide from others. But in that moment, in that judgment, there is nothing to hide. Everything gets exposed. Number three, it is just. I've mentioned so many times that I do understand the weightiness of this topic. I understand that sometimes we can walk into it with a bit of trepidation. I know that there will be many who sit in the space where there is two things at play. There's a head and a heart working against this. Because many of us will either be, uh, we understand this thing at a head level. We get that God is the one who has uh, the right to judge being creator and being maker. We even have the, uh, uh, the, the, the consideration of his character and so therefore can trust his judgments as just and right. And yet when we play it out into a heart level, somehow we struggle to reconcile a loving God, a, a loving father who wants relationship with us and yet still simultaneously being that rightful holy, perfect judge who will lay out punishment and destruction 
for those who wouldn't follow him. It sometimes can be a disconnect for many of us. There are others that I know it's not just a heart issue, it's even a head issue where actually I don't necessarily believe he even has the right to judge because I question where he is coming from. I question the goal of his judgment. I think if we have to take a step back and look at these two areas, the head level and the heart level, at a head level, I think it goes without question the following the logic of God being creator and therefore having a right over his creation. But if you're struggling with that, I want to encourage you because so many times the, the argument against it or sometimes the, the obstacle that's in the way is, well, where is God working from? Because it just seems like he is working as an almost an egomaniac, that the motivation of his heart is ego. It's my way or the highway, get on board. I want you to know that as he judges and will dish out punishment, if he was judging and laying out punishment for punishment's sake, just for that, that pure enjoyment of it, I understand where you're coming from. But I want you to see the motivation of God's judgment coming through Joel chapter 3. Because I think it will start to correct our view, our head knowledge of God being this rightful judge and being able then to trust his judgment based on his character. Look what it says. Actually, before that, my words aren't good enough. Let me give, let me give you a quote. J.R. Packer put it like this. Speaking about God's wrath, God's judgment in the Bible. He said, God's wrath or God's judgment in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. I think when we realize the motivation of God's heart in his judgment is a war on sin, knowing the damage and destruction it can bring, it helps correct our thinking. Because God's judgment will always be proportional. God's wrath will always be proportional to human sinfulness. And that is a good thing. That is a right thing. That is something we should actually want to be a part of. And what is the goal of it? Look at the words in, in Joel chapter 3, just some phrases. God says, when I restore, in verse 1. And so his judgment is grounded in a desire to restore, to bring restoration. Further on in verse 16, when it says that the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold. I want you to know that God's judgment is primarily bringing protection to us. It's about restoration. It's about protection. Lastly, very next verse in 17, he says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. And so judgment has a goal and it is holiness. It is not just to bring punishment for punishment's sake. It is actually for our good. It's for our restoration, our protection and our holiness. And when we start to understand those things, our thinking and our head knowledge can come in alignment and it will flow down to our heart. Because when we understand that that is the goal of God's judgment, two things then pop out as His aim. Justice and righteousness. The goal of God's judgment is justice and righteousness. These are good things. Righteousness is that moment when you look at the world or you look at a situation, or you even look at something within your very own heart. I've had this moment many times. And you just know this thing is wrong and it needs to be made right. But I have no idea how to do that. 
There's something in God as He created us, as He wired us, that justice, justice issues are important to us. It's why even in the secular world, social justice warriors have blown up. Because there's something in it that we look at a system or a process or a, a, a society and we say, hey, that's not just, that is wrong. Something needs to be done about it. And so we desire these two things, righteousness and justice. But we come, we, we come unstuck and we walk into a wall when we realize that by our power, we can never bring those things into the world. The more we walk through this life, the more experience we have, the more we look at the absolute dumpster fire of our world, the pain, the suffering, the hurt, the uncertainty, the chaos, the more we realize that there is no social justice warrior, there is no movement, there is no political ideology, there is no charismatic leader, there is no one in power, there is no one around who is able to bring justice and righteousness. And we start to realize that there's only one who can and it's God alone. If that is his aim, I don't want us to miss that he gets there through his judgment. And so it's not something to take a step back from. It's something as hard as it may be to intentionally lean in. Last, uh, number four is, it is complete. Verse 18 says, And in that day, that day at the end, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hill shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. The goal will be realized. The day of the Lord will come. He will judge and He will put right everything so that not just our lives, but all of creation will be brought to a complete restoration to the point where it's dripping wine. I don't know if you're a wine lover, but that probably sounds like a good idea. I don't know if it's red or white, but the bouquet is gonna be crazy good. The goal will be realized. And it's God's plan for creation and humanity. It's why he says in verse 17, so that you shall know that I am the Lord your God, because his desire is always that I will be your God and you will be my people. And we will be perfectly in relationship. Number five, God's judgment should be rightly feared. I love that picture. I'll take you back to it. The, lo the Lord who roars from Zion. Verse 16, the picture of the lion that is roaring in Zion. I don't know if you know this, but a puppy doesn't roar, a lion does. And how you approach a puppy is very different to how you approach a lion. And so there is a right and healthy fear that we, we need to grab a hold of even as we approach the righteous judge. I don't know if you if you've been feeling it like I have. But there is that moment when you think about that day when all will be exposed and the righteous judge will give judgment over you for all that you have done and not done. And it just wells up within you, that little bit of fear. So often it can go down a negative road and it's just the fear that absolutely cripples us. Can I tell you, that's not from God. The fear He brings into us is that fear of the lion that reverent, rightful fear, but knowing that the lion for those who call on his name doesn't come to devour, comes to protect. And so how we approach him is so important because we don't approach him like the puppy. He's not some, some free, domesticated, small version of God. He's the God who holds all eternity, who holds all creation, who at the snap of his fingers can change anything and everything. And yet he cares about me. 
and yet he cares about my heart. And yes, yet he cares about the damage and the destruction I walk into every single day because of the sinful nature that is within me and says, hey, I want to act in that. I want to rescue you there. When I was telling Nikita about this, my wife, we were on the way back from uh, Mshlanga yesterday. I normally give her the headlines of a preach and we were in the car and uh, her comment as she had kind of gone through Joel chapter three was, so basically underlined headline, Joel chapter three is God flexing just how hardcore he is. And I said, to be honest, that's theologically astute because it's basically what's going on. And I asked her the question, I said, does it, well, like, does it bring up any fear within you, kind of looking at it? And I loved her response because she said, it does, but in a really good way. I think that's the, the place we should be in when we uh, understand God as the righteous judge. That it has a reverent awe and it has a reverent fear that wells up, but it doesn't ever stop us approaching, it just helps us approach in the right way. It's that moment, I stood, I, I stood on the beach a lot this week um, with two babies. I watched the sunrise every single day this week because the best wake up we got was uh, quarter past five in the morning. So it, it was early days the whole time. But walking up and down the promenade, looking at, God, at the ocean God made, there is something in it looking at, that, at those waves and realizing this is just a minuscule little image of the massive ocean he made, of the massive planet he made, of the massive solar system he made, of the massive universe he made, that it can't, you can't help but just realize, hey, this is a big God. It, 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 it does something to your soul in creating that, that feeling of awe. But simultaneously, that fear of Jeepers, he's a big God. That's the place it wants us to be. Number six is this. When it comes to God's judgment, it should be desired. If you're in that space where it's, it's a difficult topic, I wanna encourage you, this is actually something we should want. You might struggle with the judgment of God. I want to put it to you. We want God to be a judge because it is a good thing. So often we will look at our world and we look at the pain. We look at the circumstance that is just so messed up. And we say, you know what? We, do, we know this shouldn't be like this. We know it shouldn't be this way. We understand that there is injustice. But I want you to know that the righteous judgment of God doesn't just matter at the end of time, it even matters now in these moments and these times. Because it is the justice and righteousness of God that is still available to us even today. It might be a small version of it because he brings the ultimate version later, but it matters today. The judgment of God, the justice of God, it matters today in the midst of the chaos of our world, the pain of our world, the hurt of our world. We realize that He is the only one who can bring justice. He is the only one who can bring righteousness. We understand that it is so important to desire a righteous judge because with a righteous judge will come righteous uh, anger and with righteous anger will come righteous action. We aren't able to act on it ourselves. We aren't able to do any of it ourselves. I wanna take you to a verse in Psalm 7 and I think it so captures God's heart in the matter. I told you, I'm gonna set you up as God the judge, but I also don't want you to miss his heart for us. In verse 11 of Psalm 7, it says this, God is a righteous judge 
and a God who feels indignation every day. If you're sitting in that space where perhaps you are questioning God, struggling with God, even maybe angry at God, God, you're not, you're not sorting this out. You're not correcting this wrong. You're not bringing justice to this injustice. Do you even care? I want you to know that God feels that indignation every day. That at a heart level, God cares every day. But He is simultaneously the God who knows the beginning from the end. And so His timing is perfect. His action is perfect. He's the only one powerful enough to right the situation. And He will do it at the time that He sees best. And so often we fall into the category of, well, God, can you like move now? God, I'm struggling like now. When are you going to do it? Do you even care? And we question, we get angry. We want a God that is indignant every day because we know what that leads to. That leads to His righteous action, but it's going to be in His right time. Number seven, when it comes to God's judgment, we need to grab a hold of this, that only one voice matters. After he gives the picture of the lion, in the end of verse 16, it says, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. How often do we add our voice to the mix? How often do we take it into our own hands and say, well, God, you know, I've given you the blueprint. This thing is wrong. Here's how you can fix it. Go for it. How often do we say, well, God, I don't think you're seeing this right. I think you're missing it. Maybe let me help you out. He makes it very clear that he is the judge and he is the only judge. That when he called the nations to the valley of decision, he is the only decider. Only one voice matters. The big truth we need to grab a hold of is that we are not the solution because we are a big part of the problem. And so sometimes we need to realize that God has his seat and it's that throne and we have our seat and we need to realize our place in it. That actually if we desire the restoration, if we desire the redemption, if we desire that relationship with God, we need to sit in our seat and let him sit in his. Romans 2 puts it like this. Verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Number eight, we're nearly there. Number eight, when it comes to God's judgment, I don't want us to miss that it is consistent. I've hinted at it moments through this message, but I don't want us to miss that in the hecticness of this chapter, a chapter in the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, uh, that this is not just something new or something exclusive to this moment or to the, even the Old Testament. Because I think when we are those people who sometimes struggle with God's judgment, what we do is fall down a false belief or go down a false road where we start to put a picture together that the Old Testament God is the big, judgy, scary God. And then the New Testament God is the grace, loving, happy teacher God. I want you to see the consistency of God's message and His truth and His word throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, throughout all eternity. That yes, He is the righteous judge in the Old Testament. And yes, He is the loving Father in the New Testament who makes a way for us to know Him and, be, and, and get salvation. But He is that in the Old Testament too. And in the New Testament, He's the righteous judge as well. 
He's consistent throughout. We have to hold these things together. They're two sides of the same coin. And we can never let one go without the other because they feed into each other. I'll give you a passage from uh, the New Testament. Romans 2, same chapter, says this in verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when the God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 8 carries on and says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Does that sound just as hectic? That's New Testament. That's the Apostle Paul writing. I don't want us to miss that God is the righteous judge in the Old Testament, but He's the judge in the New Testament. Nearly 50 references of Jesus' teaching Himself, saying, hey, if you want to know me, you need to understand that I am the one who will judge. And that is a good thing, because the judgment from me is righteous, but it has a focus and a goal, and that goal is your restoration. We can't miss it. Number nine, we can't miss that it is His love in action. Verse four of Romans chapter two says, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I don't want us to miss that the judgment of God is based on love. That the thing that leads a, a hard human heart to turn, to repent and go back to God is not the punishment worry, is not the, 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 the scariness of the judgment, it's the kindness of God. Kindness leads us to repentance. It causes us to turn from our ways in going our own way to turning to His. His judgment actually comes against our sin and it is fueled by His hatred for sin because He understands the damage and destruction it brings upon us. And so that's why He will enact all of this judgment and all of this wrath and all of this rage against the thing that will cause so much damage and destruction to us because He cares and loves us so deeply. I want you to see that He is the judge and He is loving. And if he simply just overlooked sin, he wouldn't be that God. He's the judge who has to deal with it. But he's the loving God who makes a way for us to get out of it. I love it in verse 2 of Joel chapter 3. And I think this sums up the heart of God in all of this. As the band joins me on stage... He says, I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people. I think it's so important to understand the position of God in, the, in that seat, the judgment seat sitting on his throne, that he does it on behalf of his people, that that is his heart, that that is his motive, that that is the position he takes as righteous judge, but the judge who desires to restore. He acts on our behalf because it is so grounded in a love for you and me. We can never miss it. This is where I want to end it with number 10. When it comes to the judgment of God, I want us to see that it is complete in Jesus. The reason it is complete in Jesus is because in Jesus we find the perfect judge. We find the judge that is going to call out every sin. He's not going to overlook any He's going to call out every rebellion. He's going to call out every temptation, every fear, 
every failure and being a righteous judge, he will render a verdict. And when it comes to the sin of humanity and the sin of the world, a righteous judge can only give one verdict and that verdict is guilty. And the punishment attached to that guilt is one of death. But the righteous judge is also the loving father who wants to save his children. And so he says, I'll take on the trial. And he'll put on flesh and he'll live a sinless life and he'll die a death that he shouldn't have. So that in his death, in him overcoming death and being raised from the dead, he can actually make new life available to us. Where his righteousness now gets imputed to us. And our unrighteousness hangs with him on a cross. And I don't want you to think I'm just that preacher who's now running to Jesus in the New Testament, bring the gospel, let's go for it, and think it is not present in our passage. I want you to see that that Jesus, that gospel, that power, that truth, that revelation is present in Joel chapter 3. That God, even in His words, had a plan from the start. Joel chapter 3 says this in verse, at the end of verse 18. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and, the, and water the valley of Shittim. It's an unfortunate name for a valley. I was so hoping it had a different pronunciation. It doesn't. But I think we miss the significance of that valley because Jesus is the fountain that comes from the house of the Lord and waters that valley. But I think we miss what happens in that valley because that's a real place. And as you look through the Old Testament and the history of Israel, I want to tell you what went down there. That was a place, a location, a region in the midst of Moabite territory outside of the promised land. It actually, for Israel, was a place of great failure. Failures. It was actually the place where Moses sinned to the point where he was, he was told, you will not enter the promised land. You're going to see it, but you're not allowed to cross in. It was the place of, of a great many military defeats. God's people literally being defeated by enemy armies. It was a place of, of sin and idolatry. It was a place where the nation of Israel actually had gone against God's command and had intermarried uh, with the Moabite uh, woman of, the t of that area. And God actually has to bring a plague so that that generation falls away and they can enter into the promised land. I want you to see that that place, that valley, represented the failure, the sin, the iniquity and the rebellion of Israel. I want you to know that if Jesus is the fountain that comes from the house of the Lord and waters that place, that He is the one who will cover over every sin, every failure, every misstep, every mishap, every rebellion, every iniquity, because that's what He does, because He is the perfect judge who makes a way out. That actually where there is a place that was desolate and desert, He brings living water so that it is lush and green and fertile because it is so alive in His Spirit. Why don't you stand with me? Father God, I pray right now, wherever we might find ourselves, and I think there's two spaces we might find ourselves. We might find ourselves sitting in that valley where we, we know the failure, we know the messed steps, we know the mess ups. 
but I pray we would know that there is a fountain that flows down from your house and it's available to water us in that place, to cover over every failure, to cover over every misstep so that that desolate place can be lush, can be filled with your spirit, can be so, so fueled by your living water. On the other side, Lord, we might find ourselves in a space where our thinking and our perspective on your judgment has been wrong, but today you have wanted to bring a realignment to our thinking, a realignment to our perspective so that we actually can approach you rightly in this. Lord, your judgment is a good thing. You as the judge is so necessary for our salvation. Without your judgment, Lord, restoration relationship with you is impossible. And so Lord, we don't shy away from it. We encourage it, we step into it, we approach you boldly, but we also approach you with that reverent fear, knowing that we have a lion who comes to protect. But for those who reject, for those who go their own way, we're aware that you're also the lion who will devour. Lord, it's a harsh mess message. It's a weighty message. But Lord, it's a message that we so need to hear because it is the only thing that can bring justice and righteousness into our world that so desperately needs it. It's the only thing that can bring righteousness into my unrighteous heart and can change me from the inside out. Lord, the problem of sin is so radical that it needs a radical judge, a radical saviour to do radical things to get a radical God back in. Lord, your heart, your desire for us is that you would dwell with us, that you would be our God, that we would be your people and we'd be in perfect relationship. Lord, I pray that you would, even as we worship now, even as we sing of this Father heart of yours, that you would again grab a hold of us, pull us near, draw us in. Your judgment is always trying to pull us in, pull us close. Jesus, would you pull us close again? Would you make your presence known again to us, your mercy known to us again, your love known to us again? And might we turn all back to you in glory, in worship, in honour and praise. Let's sing together.